Hello and welcome to the Mountain Conversations podcast, the show that celebrates the beautiful planet we call home. Each episode, alongside an expert who is passionate about their subject, we will take you on a journey to get you excited about the topic. This is a show about hope and positivity, and it's my hope that by learning something new each episode about the work of amazing people who dedicate their lives to making a difference, you will be inspired to take action and get involved in the efforts to preserve our beautiful home, planet Earth. I'm Charlie, and this is Mountain Conversations. We're here for another episode with another expert guest and I first wanted to just thank everyone for the amazing support you've shown during the first few weeks of this podcast. I'm delighted that so many of you have taken the time to listen and I hope that that will continue to grow as we have so many exciting guests and subjects lined up over the coming weeks. Today I'm here with marine conservationist and children's TV presenter Rory Crawford who's going to talk to me all about a topic that I will admit that I know nothing about so I'm excited to learn alongside the audience. Hi Rory, thank you for being here today. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to learn about our topic but could you introduce it for us? I love the level of um, mystery being applied here and it feels appropriate <laughs> I feel we're going to talk about some legendary birds today, and that is albatross. So albatrosses are birds that kind of defy superlatives even. So it's the biggest flying bird in the world. It's the wandering albatross. Its wingspan is 3.5 metres across. They mate for life. The oldest bird in the world is an albatross. Her name is Wisdom. She's a Laysan albatross. They go on huge journeys. They can circumnavigate the globe as grey-headed albatrosses do in between breeding periods. They are just remarkable birds and, of course, surrounded by art and stories and mythology. Many people study the rhyme of the ancient mariner in school. We talk about an albatross around someone's neck uh, because of that. Of course, there's the Fleetwood Mac song, Albatross, which is all like Marks and Spencer's advert, floatiness. Um, yeah, they're just remarkable birds that have inspired people through the generations because of the way that they fly, how graceful they are, how beautiful they are, how remarkable they are. And what I work on is one of the biggest threats that these birds face. So many might not know there's 22 different species of albatross. And of those, 15 are threatened with extinction. And the major source uh, of that risk uh, at sea is accidental capture in fisheries what we call bycatch so birds being killed uh, being caught on hooks in, in longline fisheries which are often set for tunas or for things like patagonian toothfish um, or colliding those huge big wings they've got with the big thick steel cables that drag trawl nets through the water as they catch things like hake for example um, and that's killing hundreds of thousands of, of albatross every every year. On longline fisheries alone, we estimate that 100,000 albatross are killed every single year. So I work for the BirdLife International Marine Programme. And since the early 2000s, we've had a campaign called Save the Albatross. And um, our purpose is really to do just that, to turn around the situation for albatrosses particularly by working on this issue of bycatch and fisheries. And the exciting thing is that this is a solvable problem. In conservation, we're always talking about 
you know, what seemed like intractable issues, you know, really fundamental, difficult things to stop happening. The joy of working on this issue is that there is a solution and we have many examples of how it's worked. So I am... I knew from when I started working from the RSPB that I wanted to start working with the Albatross Task Force. I'd never seen a single albatross in my life. I've still only seen one species uh, of those 22, and it was a fleeting, distant glimpse. Many people will never see albatrosses, um, but that doesn't stop us caring and, and wanting to do something about it. And for me, that's such a compelling and exciting conservation message. So, yeah, that's what we're going to talk about. I hope. <laughs> wow. Well, I love Albatross Task Force. That just sounds so mysterious and exciting. And it all sounds like exactly what we love here at the Mountain Conversations podcast, which is stories of hope and positivity to show that, you know, we do have this potential to make a change. But as I do with all of my guests, I just want to rewind quickly and just talk about your journey because we're obviously celebrate. We want to celebrate conservation heroes too, and that's what you are. So, <laughs> so we want to just talk about your inspiration and your journey, and what was it that made you passionate about not just albatrosses but about nature and how you got here. Well, that's very kind of you to call me a hero. I, I mean, and in, in put that on your CV. Yeah, I should, first thing. I mean, in practical terms, I don't see myself as a hero. And the people who I feel are the real heroes we're hopefully going to talk about. I mentioned the Albatross Task Force there. We'll come on to talking about the Albatross Task Force. Those are people that I see as as true heroes in this story. And I'm, you know, I'm basically a pen pusher, a, a guy in front of, of Excel, uh, trying to move some numbers around and, and help with troubleshooting. But my own journey, I mean, yeah, I... Uh, in school, uh, I did quite well at school, um, and I went to go and see my career adv- careers advisor, and they said, hey, with, well, with your grades, you know, maybe you could do medicine, or maybe you could do law, or what about dentistry? Um, and I was kind of looking through the university prospectus, and I, well, I was like, I don't want to do medicine, like, I'm not a big fan of, like, blood and guts, um, I don't really want to do law, uh dentistry okay fine blood in the mouth is fine is literally the thought that went through my mind so I applied to like four dentistry courses and then when I was looking through the prospectus my advisor said oh you should think of a backup option you know something that if you don't get in you know the grade requirements aren't so high and you're more guaranteed to get in as it were so I was flicking through and I found this marine and freshwater biology course at Glasgow University and I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. I sat and read the prospectus and thought, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't feel that when I was looking at dentistry, but I was just sort of doing what was expected of me or what was being told I should do. Yeah. So I applied for dentistry. I managed to get into a couple of unis. Glasgow Uni is where I wanted to go. They accepted and I went and did a... I was lucky to be an exchange student in the US for my last year of high school. So... I'd applied a year before my friends for university so that I could do that. Uh, and it was based on like predicted grades rather than actual grades from my hires, as we call them in Scotland. And I went off to um, just outside Pittsburgh for a year um, to be an exchange student in the in the US. And I was lucky. I mean, one, I was lucky, you know, to be at a good school and, you know, to have all those privileges and comforts that I that I had in that situation. But especially, you know, being away for a year as an exchange student, I had the time to sort of think and process like when you're in school 
unless you had your head screwed on a lot better than I did, I just sort of went through the motions of what was being told or expected of me and wasn't doing a lot of thinking for myself and actually having the time to sit and think, do I want to be a dentist? And this is, we need dentists in the world, right? I'm not going in on the dentists. Dentistry is critical, clearly. We need to have functioning teeth to eat, etc. But it wasn't for me. And I had the time to think, actually, that thing, that marine biology thing sounded a lot more exciting and a lot more like what I wanted to do. And um, so I remember calling my parents and saying, listen, I, uh, I think I want to change. I don't think I want to do the dentist thing. I'd like to do that backup option that I chose. And that was it. So I went to uni for, for four years at, at Glasgow. Loved it. Um, really got a lot of the course, thought it was brilliant. But what I would say is I didn't really learn any particular skills as a naturalist when I was at university. And I think a lot of students I speak to experience the same thing, right? You learn about these things feels like it's kind of an isolation. Like we studied tropical coral reef systems and we studied, um, we did a little bit of, you know, we did sort of domestic marine biology as well and looked at the life in the Firth of Clyde, for example, and did rocky shores and sandy shores and all that kind of thing and did a number of zoology modules. But we didn't spend any time really like in, in the habitat around us, you know, wandering around city parks. What are those birds you can see in here? Uh, I was clueless. I was absolutely clueless. Um, and I went, uh, just as I was coming towards the end of my uni uh, life, my undergrad, I realized I don't have any qualifications for the working world. I was starting to think about jobs. Uh, I was working on an off license at the time, uh, part-time to help pay for, you know, being at uni. Mm-hmm. And I started volunteering with a children's wildlife group that RSPB ran, a wildlife explorers group in Glasgow. And um, it was a you know a commitment that I could fit in around work in uni. It was just sort of one one night per month with a bit of prep time. And I went to it was one must be my first or second um, class with the kids. And one of the kids came up to me. They had this bird ID sheet with like ten common garden birds in it. And one of them said to me, um, "Can you tell me what that bird is?" And I was just like looking at him like, I I don't know what that bird is. And I, in fact, I don't know most of the birds that you've already identified on that sheet. I could be like, yeah, that's a robin. Yeah. Um, that's a blackbird. And I don't think I knew anything else. And that was a like a proper thunderbolt moment for me. I knew that we hadn't done, you know, I knew that I couldn't recognize bird song or, or common birds, but it was kind of like, hmm. I need to go and learn this stuff. So I just started like, you know, jenning up a little bit. And then uh, I was working, I then got a job in an aquarium, which I did for a few months, um, Loch Lomond Aquarium, not far outside of Glasgow. Uh, But it wasn't fulfilling me in as much as I knew I wanted to work in conservation. So a job came up, a short-term contract came up with the RSPB. And I thought, okay, I've got a full-time job. Um, It's not paid great. But uh, I'm, I'm, I need to try and take a risk here and try and break into conservation. So I applied for this four-month contract. They had a bird ID test in the interview uh, with 10 upland birds. Mm. I didn't even know what uplands were. I mean, that gives you an idea of my sort of habitat ignorance, terrestrial habitat ignorance. So I figured that all out, swatted up in the most common birds and did okay. I mean, I got some, I guess, what would be considered obvious ones wrong, like golden plover. But anyway, they gave me a job. And for, for, you know, a month and a half of that contract, I showed people around uh, a Heather Moorland 
um, uh, and showed them a video of, of nesting hen harriers that were on this protected protected site in the regional park. Um, and not long into that contract, another short contract came up this time for two years, so it was longer working in Kelvin Grove Museum in Glasgow. A new project that the RSPB were setting up with the museum to connect people not only to the natural history um, exhibits in the museum, but also to the parks surrounding uh, the museum. And as a kid who'd grown up in Glasgow, who really appreciated and, and thought connection with nature was important, um, this was like a, a great opportunity. And Kelvin Grove at that time had just been reopened and refurbed and was like the busiest visitor attraction in Scotland, uh, busier than Edinburgh Castle even at that time. So, um, yeah, that was a really exciting opportunity. Went off and went off and did that. Um, loved it, um, but was pretty pretty tired coming towards the end of that contract and. Um, because, you know, engaging with hundreds of people a day sometimes, mm-hmm. even an enthusiastic person like me starts to whew, yeah. slowly, slowly get less enthusiastic. And your voice, I mean, at the end of a weekend, my voice would just be like a 60 a day smoker. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. And then I went from there. to I went and did some voluntary work in the Seychelles, actually. I, I um, thought I need, to, I need to reconnect with my roots and get back to doing um, biology and conservation stuff more hands on. Um, went and, and got a managed to get a, a grant to go because I, I couldn't particularly afford the flights or the, or the time away, but I was able to, you know, stop renting a flat and and I went um got a grant got got on a got on a plane and went for three months in the uh, to a reed island in the Seychelles, which was like incredible, um tiny little island, um and yeah, that sort of reopened my eyes. Like yes, I want to you know I want to be more practically hands on with conservation stuff. Came back and did some work in reserves for a, a short time again in short contracts. And then an opportunity came up to work in marine policy um, on a, in a maternity cover role uh, in Scotland. Uh, and I grabbed that opportunity with both hands um, managed to get some follow on work, still working in the marine policy space, working on like marine protected areas in Scotland, all for RSPB still. And then a job came up in the team I work in now back in 2013, um, which... When I was working in Kelvin Grove, they had an albatross, a wandering albatross, a stuffed wandering albatross, obviously, not a live one, in the museum that I used to use to tell people about RSPB's work on albatross. And being a marine nerd, being somebody who loves uh, the sea and loves marine life, I always just loved talking about that work because I thought, oh, that's so cool. It's so practical. It's so hands-on. It's so solutions-focused. It works. I knew, I was like, how do I get into that team so 2013, that finally came true, having started working for the RSPB six years previous. Yeah. And I came and, came and joined the team. And uh, yeah, now, now my job is... Um, now I finally got a sort of permanent contract now after many years in short-term contracts. I'm sure lots of folk listening to this podcast will feel that pain working in the sector. And uh, yeah, now I, I look after, uh, help support the Albatross Task Force to do their work and help set the direction and the strategy and find the money. Um and yeah, I love it. It's great. It sounds amazing. And I love that the thing that all of the guests so far on this podcast, have, no one's had a, a linear journey, you know, nothing's been straightforward, you know, bouncing from, you know, a, as things are supposed to progress, you know, as society tells us. And I think everyone's just highlighting that you don't have to have a linear journey. I mean, I myself, I started out in dental nursing, you know, you're saying about dentistry. Yeah, you know, so maybe it's a thing. <laughs> um but yeah no I just find it I find it fascinating to hear people's journeys and to to sort of hear the variety in people's journeys but we're here to talk about one thing 
and that is albatrosses. So I will admit that for me, when I think of an albatross, I do think of this mysterious, legendary, giant thing that I'm, I, I wasn't even sure, you know, not that I wasn't sure they existed. I know they exist, but they don't feel something. They don't feel tangible. Do you know what I mean? They just don't feel like something that, you know, I see herring gulls outside every day. I see blackbirds outside every day, but an <laughs> albatross is just something that's so exotic and unknown. So let's unravel them. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, they kind of are, right? I mean, the habits of albatross are such that they're ancient birds, right? You know, they're millions of years these birds have been around and they're evolved for life at sea. So they spend more time away from land than they do on it. So it's no wonder that it's, it can feel like a bird that's almost, that has to have that status because its existence is so separate from that of, of a human, right? You know, with a garden bird. It's almost more immediately relatable because, and that's something I love about garden birds. You can see how it fits into the habitat that you also exist in, whereas many marine creatures exist in this way that's completely foreign to us. So I think it's a totally understandable feeling to have, and I think it's part it's part of the mystique. It actually helps albatrosses that they've they've got, you know, for conservation uh, charisma purposes. Yeah. That's it's in some ways a helpful attribute, in other ways not, right? Because it's distant, far off. Why is it my problem? Type of thing. So, you know, they've they've got this incredible life history. They take a they take a long everything takes a long time with albatrosses, right? So if we think of their lifetimes kind of you know, analogous to a human lifetime, you know, they can live the great albatrosses, the big ones, um, can live over 60 years. And, you know, this, the oldest bird in the world, as I said, is, is an albatross, Lisa, uh, Lisa and Albatross, wisdom. So they can live for a long time. They take a long time to become sexually mature. So um, again, birds like the wandering albatross could be 10, 11, 12 years old before they start breeding. Mm-hmm. And it could be that they're about five or six years old before they start coming back to the breeding site and practicing what it means to be a grown up albatross. So all these teenagers sort of come back to the colony, squaring up to each other, like figuring out, you know, the fabulous dances, the courtship rituals that albatrosses have. They sort of sit and watch and awkwardly practice it. It's very, you know, it's it's a lot like human life in many ways, if you think about all the awkward teenage teenage dances that you went yeah. to in school or whatever else. So it's not, it's really not so dissimilar. But yeah, they they will they'll do that and then they'll, you know, once they're uh, mature, uh, sexually mature, then they'll a, a pair will get together. They'll mate for life, generally. Um, the chick will take a long time to grow. So from egg to fledging in a wandering albatross, and I use them as an example a lot because they're perhaps the sort of most totemic of, of the albatross species. But they will take a full, just over a full calendar year to get from an egg to a bird that can fly off itself into the big bad world. Yeah. And that's a huge amount of parental investment, right? So it's two parents, one uh, sitting with the chick and the egg when it's when it's when it's very small, um, all the way up to both of them then provisioning the chick as it gets bigger because it's becoming hungrier and and hungrier. Yeah. And then of course it gets to the point where they have to, you know, um, cut them off the apron strings and and put a distance between them and the and the chick and say, right, you need to get off your big fluffy albatross bum and go and find some some food for yourself. So. That life history and, and the fact that that's usually happening on a pretty remote island far away from human habitation means, uh, means that we don't 
they've got this mythical quality. But the other thing is that because they've, they've developed in these islands, because they're away from predators, they don't have that fear of humans. So when researchers go to study things like a, a wandering albatross, you know, they might give them a little peck, but you can walk right up and they lift them up. And if they want to weigh or measure the egg, they can, you know, lift up the bird and, you know, do do as they need to do with the egg and stick it back under the bird. You can't do that with every bird. You know, some would freak out with the disturbance and wouldn't come back to the nest or, you know, you can create all sorts of problems depending on the species. But with albatrosses, you know, they're they're often okay with you getting very close to them because they've developed in this situation, evolved in this situation where they're on islands that are far away from from predators. Mm -hmm. So that's just the sort of breeding bit of the life cycle. And then the, the flights that they go on are remarkable. So they do this thing called dynamic soaring and they, they stick their wings out and they sort of lock them out and just hold them out and they, they scarcely have to do a flap. And that's important because a bird that big and heavy flapping all the time is a really inefficient method of flight. You know, if you watch a puffin, it's like a little, it's like a ball with wings and that's not, it's got to flap frantically to keep going. A, a wandering albatross or, or another albatross has got these huge wings that they can use the updrafts of of the sea to stay soaring with very minimal effort, and that means they can travel these huge distances to find food in the open ocean, which is a notoriously tricky place to to find food. So, truly, they are like these creatures of of almost myth. But there's quite a lot of diversity in the group as well. So you've got these big um, big birds like the wandering albatross, but in the North Pacific. Um, there's this sort of unique group of, of albatrosses that are completely different. Like the black-footed albatross, which is really stunningly beautiful, sort of dark black and grey, really bonny bird. There's the waved albatross, which is sort of the only tropical albatross. It breeds only in the Galapagos Islands. It's beautiful, bright yellow, lemon yellow beak, funny-shaped head, big long neck. It is really elaborate um, courtship routine. Uh, and and they are totally different from from a wandering albatross or a blackbird albatross, which is much smaller and more compact, still big, but it's got this beautifully coloured sort of red bill at the end, which morphs into orangey yellow at the back. They've got some fancy mascara over their eyes as well. They're beautiful, so a huge variety even just within that that one group. Well, it's um, I I think it's amazing to hear about the the variety because I know right. This is probably blasphemy, but if you say albatross to me, I imagine a giant herring gull, and I know that's awful, but that's when you see like the standard picture of an albatross, that's what they look like. And just to help people sort of visualize, is that the wandering albatross that looks like that? Or <laughs> I, I guess. I mean, do you know, it's funny because um, my son's very interested in, in birds. Um, perhaps for obvious reasons um and my daughter is as well but my son's a bit older and, and you know his language is more developed so he's asking lots of questions and often if I show him a picture of an, of an albatross and say what's that bird he'll say it's a gull yeah um or vice versa you know sometimes he's a gull and says oh that's an albatross so yeah I mean I think herring gulls have obviously got that gray back wanderers tend to be um lighter on the back they do have they can have black wings as well so I guess Probably, yes, it is a wandering albatross that people are seeing and, and thinking, yeah, that looks like a big blown up, blown up gull. Giant gull, yeah. The difference with albatrosses is they've got, they're part of this group called prosilariforms, which have tube noses. So they've got a highly attuned sense of smell. So this is, you know, you can actually see tube noses in the UK. Go to a fulmer colony. Fulmers, northern fulmers, are tube noses as well and have an excellent sense of, of smell. 
and they use that as a means of of detecting prey from a great distance. So um, some of the small petrels, like storm petrels, they can smell this substance called dimethyl sulfide, which is given off by plankton, zooplankton, when they're grazing on phytoplankton. So they can smell that from miles away and descend on a part of the ocean to, to, to feed. Um, so um, that sort of thick bill and that what we call a tube nose because of the number of sort of complex tubes inside the uh, the beak is a is a key difference between them and a gull. But otherwise, I I don't think it's bad to compare it to a gull because they're seabirds. They appear to be of a similar build. Conceptually, if that's how it works, I'm cool with that. I love gulls as well. I suppose if it helps people sort of visualise, I'm just imagining being in, in sort of Clendidnose seafront and being attacked by albatross for your chips. <laughs> that would be terrifying you'd be like Jurassic Park wouldn't it? you'd be in trouble I mean not least because just imagine a wandering albatross's wings like 3.5 metres like just imagine that they've really got to fold them up and then tuck them in so yeah. it's really like a proper origami operation uh, to get them out and then that coming at you in Fandudno would be woof. yes I would I would give up my chips <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Right. You talked about this albatross task force, which I just think sounds wonderful. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about that and what they're doing and what that means? Yeah, of course. And I mentioned at the start, we've got solutions to this problem of bycatch, right? So um, in in the 90s, certainly the late in the 80s and 90s, the awareness of, of one of albatross populations declining was was increasing. So there were studies done places like Bird Island in South Georgia, which is sort of sub-Antarctic uh, island. There was there's been researchers out there for um for many years now. They were monitoring the albatross populations and seeing declines and starting to find hooks, birds coming back with hooks in their stomach if they would ingest them. Um at the same time we were starting to get some information from fishing vessels that birds were being hauled aboard dead. So that sort of led to to increased numbers of observers on board to monitor what was going on, to try and understand what was happening. And this particularly was happening around what's called CAMELAR. That's the Convention on the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. CAMELAR is better. Mm -hmm. Um, And this, this area, of course, around Antarctica is not... Antarctica doesn't belong... It belongs to no one and everyone, right? And the seas around it, the same goes. So there was recognition there had to be a body there to protect the resources and, and protect the environment of Antarctica. And part of the development of that was understanding the impacts of these fisheries and what impacts they were having on, on nature, particularly albatrosses. So we were learning that this there was this problem occurring. And what happened over a number of years is they developed solutions to solve the problem. So one of the simplest is if you imagine a long line vessel, it's literally a long line with loads of hooks on it. So some of these long lines are like 20 miles long um, and they've got thousands and thousands of hooks, each with a bit of bait on it. And that's what attracts the birds in. So they come to the, the back of the fishing vessel, they clock the bait and the hook and they'll pinch the baits off the hooks. But of course, they'll pinch some baits and eventually birds will get caught as well when they're trying to take the bait off the hook. The hook goes through their bill they get pulled underwater and, of course, they drown. And that's the way many, many birds were, were being killed. So to solve that problem, one, one simple thing to do is to stick up something called a bird scaring line. 
Um, and this was developed in, by Japanese fishermen, actually. So it gets called a tori line as well. A tori is Japanese for bird. So it, you, you stick a big pole in the back of the boat. And from that pole is a great big line of rope with bits of pipe or streamer hanging down from it that flap around in the wind and scare the birds away from the hooks. So it just acts like a scarecrow, basically. The other thing that you can do um, is weight the lines more heavily so they sink faster. So most albatrosses can't dive particularly deep um, or they dive more frequently in the upper reaches of the ocean. So the sort of critical area is described as the top 10 metres of the water. And if you can sink the hooks under 10 metres faster, then there's less risk of the birds getting a hold of it. So a combination of a bird scaring line and weighted lines can help to uh, almost completely eliminate bycatch. Mm -hmm. The third measure is, again, quite simple, setting lines at night. Birds in general, many many of these seabirds are, are visually guided predators. They need to see what they're going after. So if you do it at night, uh, there's just fewer birds around and fewer to get caught. So setting the lines at night made a big difference. And combining all those measures, Camelar made it uh, you know legally mandated that all fisheries in the area had to use them. They had very high levels of, of observer coverage to make sure that was happening. And they virtually eliminated bycatch in a, in a short number of years. Yeah. Amazing success. However, Albatrosses don't recognise geopolitical boundaries. <laughs> albatrosses were not going, tell you what, let's just stick in the Camelar area because we know that's safe. <laughs> they are going into other parts of the South Atlantic, South Pacific, Indian Ocean. And there they're meeting vessels that are not using these measures. So on large parts of the high seas, that was the case. And that was also the case within what's called the exclusive economic zones of countries. So that's out to 200 nautical miles from a country's coastline is the waters that belong to that country. And that, that, those measures were not being implemented in, those pla- in many of those places in the Southern Hemisphere, and that's presenting a massive risk to albatrosses. So the Albatross Task Force was set up to fill a, a gap between science, best practice, and industry, fishing industry in those countries to try and stop this problem happening mm-hmm. In, in the waters of those places. And particularly, this was Southern Africa and South America. Um, so back in 2005, the first Albatross Task Force team was set up. And their job was to have a couple of instructors to get on the boats and to show fishers how to use this stuff. How do I rig it up? How does a bird scaling light work? How do I stop it from getting entangled? Can we change that? Because it's not going to work on my vessel. Um, how can we weight the lines better? How can we do this, that, and the other? Really working hand in glove with industry to try and solve the problem so having solutions helps but i would be lying if i said it was easy off the bat you can imagine how somebody working from a conservation ngo might be received in a fishing port one it might be like why is this a problem Mm -hmm. and we had to get over that initial perception gap because if you work in a fishing vessel and you see thousands hundreds or thousands of albatrosses around the back of your boat every time you go fishing you'll be thinking there's not a problem here what do you mean they're they're threatened with extinction there's loads behind my boat of course what they're not seeing is pictures of the colonies where where the the population was was crashing so part of it was an education piece as well to go with photographs from the colonies and say look at these white dots this was this colony you know 40 years ago and here's a a picture from three years ago look at the difference there's just not as many birds there um so really, it's, a, it's outreach, it's, it's grassroots, it's not going to the government and saying, you need to implement this stuff now, it's going into the grassroots, working with industry, and then eventually the idea is you get to a point where you go to government and say, here's the proposition, 
they, they, there are solutions here. Industry's implemented them and thinks they work. Now let's get regulations in place across the whole fleet so there's a level playing field. And that's the way it's generally panned out remarkably. I mean, I've sort of summarized, like, you know, going on almost 20 years of work into a couple of minutes there. But in South Africa, in the key fisheries, there are regulations and, and requirements to use this stuff. In Namibia, uh, about a year ago, um, we published a paper demonstrating that the team there had uh, worked with the government industry to introduce regulations in 2015. And they'd seen bycatch in the longline fishery drop by 98.4%. And that's about 22,000 birds a year saved. That was one of the deadliest fisheries in the world, the, the Hake longline fishery in Namibia. And it's been, it's been completely turned around. Uh, in Argentina, a uh, similar situation in, in Uruguay and in, in Chile, all places where we've been able to get regulations in place, working, working in a grassroots way and through local partners as well. And that's the key. This is not bird life for RSPB who set up the Albatross Task Force you know, going to a country and saying, do this, do that. We're working through the BirdLife network. So BirdLife has partners in many countries and we're either working with our local partner organization like BirdLife South Africa in South Africa or Aves Argentinas in Argentina or or through another local organization employing local instructors with expertise in this area to work with the local fishing industry. And that's critical to the success of it because it's not just about knowing what works it's about also understanding the cultural context and and everything that goes with it and and being part of the being part of the community that you're operating in um and that's been a real key to it so um back then we set out with with 10 target fisheries back in 2006 and our aim was to reduce bycatch in in all those fisheries by at least 80 percent by the end of this year and i can say that we're on track to do that we've pretty much done it with seven out of those 10 and we've got another two that I'm confident we'll get to by the end of this year. I say confident, pretty confident, kind of confident, hopeful, optimistic. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, no, it just sounds, it sounds so, it's so refreshing to hear of these sort of positive stories because everything in the news is doom and gloom, isn't it? And it's, you know, it, it's, I, I love these solution focused community engagement projects that are happening and are working and I suppose it must be so difficult because I imagine dealing with sort of the fisheries in Namibia is completely different to dealing in Argentina so it's not just a straightforward right this is how we're going in and doing it it's it's thinking about all these different cultural aspects and different you know every aspect that comes into it, it must be so complex totally and yeah I mean a, a big a big key here has been has been what I mentioned about working through local partners because it, it means you are building in the cultural aspect from the get go by working with working with a local partner, right, and not not like doing the sort of colonial conservation thing and thinking, oh, I'm you know I I know this from studying it, I can go somewhere and tell someone what to do. It just doesn't work. I mean, apart from ethically, all the ethically and morally all the issues with that approach and the fact it's demonstrated not to work or be sustainable in the long term you're doing a bunch of work to learn the cultural context as somebody who sits outside of it yeah. so by building that in in as a gra- in a grassroots local partner way means that you do it effectively uh, or you do it more naturally than trying to learn it i think the other thing has been it's like having a long-term vision and not expecting 
that you're going to solve the problem in one, two, three, four, even five years. So it was set up in 2005 and it's still going to this day and we're still working. And, and the phase that we're working on now is that having you know demonstrated reductions are possible, getting legislation in place, securing those reductions in a number of cases, is now making sure that we're working with the National Observer Agencies and the fisheries inspectors and doing training. And instead of it being 100% of of the Albatross Task Force instructors' jobs, making their job like 5% of everyone in the system's job. So an observer will be on board to check that, you know, fish fish are being harvested appropriately and there's not illegal dumping of oil or you'll be collecting lots of scientific data. We just want them to collect the bird data as well. And then the inspectors will have a whole bunch of inspection duties to do in port or at sea. We just want them, we just want to add a couple of boxes to their checklist about do they have a bird scaling line? Is it being used appropriately? So that's the phase that we're really in now is going hammer and tongs at a lot of training and, and built and creating systems that check on on what's happening with the, the bird populations as well in the fisheries. Because they'll have a meeting every year about the fish stocks. Because that's the resource that's you know financially important, right? That's what you want to know is then being sold on and, and is it in a healthy state? Are we harvesting it sustainably? What we want is that birds become part of that discussion and bycatch becomes part of that integral discussion. It might be a small agenda item, but what we need is it for it to be a regular and systematically agreed thing that gets spoken about as a matter of course. And then our work is done, right? And then we can take a, a step back and, and kick back. But that's a long-term vision. That's, you know, uh, 17 years in some of the countries we're working in and, and, we're, and we're still trying to get to that point where we feel we set up something sustainable. So it's not a parachute approach. It's required long-term funding and vision and patience and frustration <laughs> and two steps forwards, three steps back, uh, a lot of that. I think it's, um, I find it interesting that you when you're talking about bycatch, because I think when you're saying it's sort of fishing is on the the main thing on the agenda when it comes to bycatch obviously but I've it's I it's something honestly I've never really thought about as birds suffering as part of bycatch obviously you hear of dolphins you hear of you know these these big charismatic species but you don't hear of the of the seabirds and the other things that are sort of suffering as a result of this it's not not something I've thought about really yeah, and often I think there can feel like that separation, right? Because birds come to land to breed. So there's often this feeling like it's a terrestrial creature. But as I said at the start, seabirds spend the vast majority of their lives not at land. They spend their lives at sea. I mean, even think about, you know, if you saw a puffin or a fulmer or, you know, a bird that you can see around the coast of the UK, they'll go and spend the winter in the open ocean, you know, a little puffin, that tiny little thing, that cute little bird is out there right now in the middle of the Atlantic getting battered by the storms that we are seeing right now. Yeah. They're getting battered every day by that and they're coming back to breed. Um, storm petrels, you know, a storm petrel is not much bigger than a sparrow. It can fit in the palm of your hand. They are hard as hell. They are out there in the open ocean feeding on plankton, getting buffeted by storms it's remarkable what these birds do but they're marine creatures really yeah. um i mean they're air breathers dolphins are air breathers they have to come up to the surface to get air so yeah i mean they're very much part they interact they intersect with that world i always think about like in attenborough documentaries when you see that bait ball which has been driven up by predatory fish or sometimes by marine mammals then you have birds coming down from the top that kind of it's like the marine ecosystem 
in miniature and that's like that's a good way of visualizing and thinking about the potential impacts of of any marine development or human activity but especially fisheries because it, it, birds intersect with that absolutely um and yeah I mean, we need to consider all bycatch and that's something we've had to think about in developing solutions that in solving one problem you don't create another and and that's happened between between those groups right so if you're a specialist working on birds or turtles or or sharks um, you're thinking about how can I solve this problem? You need to make sure whatever problem you're solving is not creating a problem elsewhere. And that's happened with things like circle hooks, which are designed to stop turtles getting caught because they can't get their 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 mouths around them so easily. Yeah. Uh, but some circle hooks were increasing the the catch of sharks in some areas. So um, it required tweaks to the way that was done. But it requires us as marine people to really we can't think in our little silos like oh I'm a bird guy I'm just going to do that and I'm a turtle lady I'm going to stay over here we need to we need to be thinking across the board about how we develop these solutions so we don't inadvertently create other problems yeah yeah no de- I, definitely I mean that's that was at the back of my mind actually that question of sort of when you're sinking for example sinking the lines you know below the 10 meters does that but I imagine then that causes other problems for other species potentially and yeah it's a it's a chain effect isn't it and it's working out which which sort of which path to go down which creates the least uh destruction for everyone i suppose doesn't it it's so <laughs> complex <laughs> totally and also doing it in a way that you make life easy for the people who are going to be living with what you're asking them to do so if you work in the fishing industry and you get an approach from the bird people and you start doing a project with them and start implementing the thing that they asked, then you get an approach from the turtle people and they say, can you start putting circle hooks on your gear? Then you get an approach from the shark people say, why are you putting circle hooks in the gear? That, you know, that, that's no good. That's not going to work. It's overwhelming for them as well. Totally. So yeah. if, if we want to have success, we need to be integrating it from the get-go, from the very beginning to make sure that it's happening in a sort of holistic holistic way. And that's, of course, we need the help of fisheries managers and governments and those people responsible to take it seriously such that, um, you know, we've got their resource, time and attention on solving solving the problems in a sensible and holistic way. But mm-hmm. I think I think we've, there's a way to go still probably, but I think we've come a long way as a sort of NGO community in particular over how we look at these issues. So, you know, I, I liaise a lot with, with whale and dolphin conservation groups and uh, with others working on sharks and, and other um, topics. And, and while there's a whole bunch of stuff that we'll work on that's not relevant to each other, there's also areas that, that are relevant. So, yeah, I think the collaboration is definitely getting better. I think it's about collaboration, working together and engagement, isn't it? So from from that, if we can move on slightly, obviously we've both got kids but you've got the the added extra of being sort of a, a children's tv presenter obviously my kids have watched uh, have watched you on cbb's you've terrified my my four-year-old when you met him because he was completely starstruck and he ran away um i'm glad you explained that by the way <laughs> <I'm just terrifying laughs> okay, okay so we we were at um a festival it was the glowworm festival um and uh Rory was 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 there doing sort of a meet and greet with um with the kids and my kids was totally excited because you know the voice they've, they've watched you on CBBS for a few years and absolutely love the program and he saw you and I think you turned around and said hello and he just looked at me and I'm like oh and just walked away 
just on his own. And I was like, oh, bye. Now, Rory doesn't remember this. So I seem like a strange stalker when we first saw when I my first email to you, I was like, oh, hi, we've met. <laughs> but it's something that I will. Uh, yeah, I'll always remember. It's a memory I will hold dear. <laughs> but <laughs> to move away from that, when we're talking about engagement and stuff, obviously, it's important to you as well, like engaging kids. This is for me, how we're going to make such a big change. So my kids, obviously we live on the coast. We're surrounded by herring gulls mainly because we're, you know, right on the beach. Um, my kids absolutely love them. They, they go out of their way to learn stuff about them and sort of, you know, fight against that demonization of them and, and all that. And I think it's totally inspirational. I've said before in a previous episode, if we could harness the excitement of children when it comes to nature and wildlife, then I think, I think we'd be okay. So I'm just wondering, getting your thoughts on sort of engaging children and sort of how do we empower the next generation to start sort of the work that you're doing and the work that we're starting now, how do we make sure that carries on and that we continue to see change? I think we need to I think every child needs that opportunity. I actually, I think not only every child, but every adult needs that opportunity too. It feels like there's been this almost almost generation gap, perhaps two generation gap. You know, there's a perhaps some time way back when, when when paying attention to birds and birds' nests and you know people doing it like egg, you know stuff like egg collecting, which of course now is not okay, but in the past was a, a common part or more common part of growing up. Some sort of awareness of your environment and access to it was much more central to the way that you had fun as a child and the freedom just to you know to roam around um, before all the stranger danger, all this narrative is built up around, and you know things like road safety, etc have started to compound matters and the increasing urbanization of, of our lives as well. Uh, so I think both, not just kids, but adults as well, need the opportunity to access nature and to feel welcome and to feel safe and to feel confident being there. Because, yes, we should provide opportunities to kids, and especially in, in school, of course. Like I think there's too many playgrounds that are, you know, just concrete jungles that we need to green those playgrounds to give kids access to the space and my own son's um school playground is is like total concrete mm-hmm. uh, i've actually been in touch with some of the teachers about what can, we can do about it and it's next to one of the most polluted streets in scotland so um there's air pollution coming off the traffic and in a, in a concrete jungle children are not as you described children are naturally inquisitive like a baby from an early age once it's like setting up and interacting with the world when it sees a moving thing, it is fascinated by that thing. A thing that's moving of its own volition, that's doing its own thing. There's an immediate inquisitiveness about what that is. Before you've learned to be like, oh, it's a creepy crawly, or oh, what's that weird thing? It, that that natural element of surprise, excitement, interest is is absolutely within us all. And I think lockdown and and you know, everything that's happened the past couple of years with us being restricted in terms of how far we can go has brought into such keen focus, one, how much people need and rely on green spaces close to where they are, yeah. and two, the inequalities around what's available to people as well. And and particularly in city centres, when people were told you've got to stay inside, if you're staying inside a flat all day, yeah. and then you're allowed out for one walk, the park's filled up. Um as you would expect, and, and 
I mean, it's it really brought it home the importance of of giving that access. So for me, a lot of this is even just about fundamentals of like town planning and what green space do we offer people, and how do we make sure it's safe, and how do we make sure it's rich in wildlife, and that that's seen as a fundamental right rather than a nice extra on the side of whatever housing estate, and that it's not just for nice new middle class developments out here over in this part of, of, of the town on the outskirts and the suburbs or whatever, that it's integral to how we plan the way we live in cities themselves. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I think that's like, that's for adults and that's for children. But for kids, I mean, absolutely, that, that level of immediate interest and excitement until usually until an adult's got to them and been like oh don't do that or you shouldn't do this you shouldn't do that and I don't pass judgment on the adults that do that because often I think there are reasons for that but they've absolutely got that interest and we do need to harness that and and for me that was the exciting thing I mean as you know Charlie the programs that I previously worked on were about and were about they were about animals but they were about pets primarily um which I love. I don't actually have any. We do have fish in the house actually now, but um, I've not had pets for, for years and, mm-hmm. until I had my own kids. And my passion is is more about wildlife compared to domestic animals, which I do love, as I say. But So making the, the show we've most recently made, it's called Teeny Tiny Creatures, um, for me is like the thing that I've always wanted to do because it's, it's about showing kids things that they will be able to see themselves. Yeah. Some some things that are more tricky to see, but think a woodlouse, a worm, a bee. These are all things that wherever you live in the country, as a child, you'll be able to go and see. Yeah. And when you, you we you know we pro, we protect what we care about, right? We conserve what matters to us. And and your your sons loving herring gulls is like brilliant. <laughs> Herring gulls are a red listed species in this country and um get vilified all the time. But they they care about them, right? They've they've taken that cause uh and that interest and and now they care about the fate of those birds. So I just think it, it won't take a lot, it's like a little spark, but equally um we need the people who are responsible for the systems, the planning, everything that goes around how we live, uh to take this take this issue seriously as well. No, absolutely. Completely. Yeah, completely agree there. I mean, I know it's a bit of a it's a bit going out there. We said we'd do this and go a bit wibbly with our conversation. But there's a there's a, a country park in Anglesey um, that's they're going through the proposal now to build a kind of a holiday, you know, one of these static caravan holiday parks on it. And I just think it's absolutely I just I just think it's a complete step backwards. And, you know, I've, I've t- talked about my kids about about this with my kids and they're like but but what about the the red squirrels there and what about the the birds and things and I'm just thinking if the kids are saying hang on a minute what about what about the biodiversity here then why yeah it still strikes me that it's sort of defined it's it summarizes humans doesn't it that that we're willing to go to those extremes that children can see children who still can see the wonder of the world and haven't been sort of tarnished by society if you like they can still see the problems with it and yet when it's just sad that when we get to adulthood we think that's okay I'm not saying all of us do but you know generally as a society we think that's okay and it's just about for me it's about breaking that it's about breaking the the moment when you go from childhood to adulthood and the wonder disappears and the excitement disappears. And it's about, for me, that's why I want to do this podcast. It's about 
encouraging people to get excited again about nature I mean I've had family say to me why are you so interested in birds birds are for old people and I'm like what (laughs) excuse me (laughs) you know and it's just it's I just I'm so interested to know when that moment comes in in your life where you stop being excited about the world around you and just start seeing birds as this boring thing and you know habitats as this thing that are ours to be to destroy and stuff it just it baffles me did those people so those people in your family that said that charlie i mean did they have any change like during lockdown for example so did they then see actually it's quite nice that i can hear the bird song in the morning because there's not like 400 flights going overhead and, and cars going down the road did they in that situation, which, you know, albeit was an extreme and sudden change, mm-hmm. realise the value of those things? Probably not in the way that we we think of it, but I think the area that they live is a big sort of city centre, one of the biggest city centres in the UK. And I think that during the lockdown, they definitely, when everything took a step back from that sort of mad sort of rushed city life and everything took a step back and people were going to the parks more and things, I think they did start to appreciate how important that is but I think there's still a long way to go in sort of teaching them that the excitement and the wonder and everything that's on offer to us and how important it all is I mean I've done it I've done an episode on on wasps and sort of how people vilify wasps and I still do if I see one I still run in the other direction but it's about explaining everything you know explaining the place that everything has in in nature and the balance and without these things everything else would collapse you know it's just for me it's just about building up people's knowledge talking to people and explaining that we're all here we're all part of nature we're not separate from nature you know we're animals at the end of the day and I think yeah I think as you said it's about learning to appreciate it and I think lockdown did do that for a lot of people it did sort of make us take a step back and yeah enjoy yeah, and also meeting people where they're at, right? Like, I think you're not going to go in and be like, what do you mean you're not enjoying the that <laughs> fluty call of the robin? Or what do you mean, you know, you're not excited by seeing that and uh, those ants building a colony there? If if for people it's about having a tree and a bit of green space, like, tick, that's fine. Yeah. Like, that's, a, that's a place to start. And the other benefits that spin off from that, you know, grand, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to build nature reserves in the middle of cities because they're the most important places for biodiversity as it stands. But one, it'll, it'll build engagement and interest. Two, it's it's about accessibility. And three, yeah, it might start. We might start creating green corridors that go through cities that that can that have a sort of ecological or biological meaning. Um, but actually, more fundamentally, we should think about it in those terms that of 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 changing the mind of of humans or changing our experience conservation is completely about humanity i think that's something that has you know from when i started studying uh at undergrad level and had an idea about what conservation was i think then getting into the sector and realizing i mean it's it's obvious really but it is about humanity like i'm actually in conservation dealing with with people most of the time and a lot of you know conservationists get frustrated because many of us are here because we're interested in animals and the outdoors and wildlife and that's where we want to be and I still use my free time to do that but so much of my job is talking to people because conservation is about people it's about humans really Mm -hmm. it's about 
I suppose people think, oh, it's about saving the animals, saving the planet, but really it's about addressing the anthropogenic effect that we've had on the world around us. It's not about sort of, you know, nature's nature will be fine without us. Do you know, like, you know, if we weren't here suddenly, nature would recover. That's that's the you know, what's again, I keep using the Jurassic Jurassic Park quote, life finds a way and it will be without <laughs> us. So I think while we're here it's important to remember that that's what conservation is about. It's about reversing the anthropogenic effect. Totally. And, or, and, you know, getting, you know, it's important for conservationists to think this way because inter, if you realize it's about humans, do you then realize it intersects with everything else that humans, the system that humans live in? Mm -hmm. So you conservation is not separate from those issues. It's not separate from that world. So we have to engage with the issues that matter to people and that might mean you're having a discussion about something which you didn't go in to have you might have gone into that you know to go and talk to the fishing industry about saving birds for them it might be about making sure their fishing operation is efficient and and they're not losing money or they're you know there's because there's then knock-on effects for like how much money a crew member takes over to their to home to their family or whatever it is you have to you, can, you might come in with your like here's my conservation purist perspective about what this means but humans don't exist in a in a bubble separate from the environment they're interacting with yeah. and all the other systems and and issues that act on them as an individual or as communities so we the more conservationists that start thinking about it in this way and recognizing the humanity and in others including those people they might perceive to be enemies or on the opposite opposite side of the fence then then the better really Absolutely. And I think exactly with your sort of albatross task force work, that's it's it completely highlights the importance of that, the importance of pulling together all of these important issues and aspects and bringing them together to create a positive permanent change. And I think on that note, before we run on for another two hours, which I think we probably we probably could, <laughs> I think we'll have to draw to a close. But it's been so brilliant to talk about a real it feels like I feel really positive and really hopeful now about you know just even just talking about one 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 big conservation project that's going on and that's that's the whole thing that's what I want to do I want to bring these celebratory stories to the to the wider audience because I think they're not talked about enough and I'd just like to thank you for coming and taking the time and telling us all about the work that you're doing the work the task force doing and demystifying the amazing albatross Thank you for having me, Charlie. It's always a pleasure to talk about albatrosses, <laughs> even though I've only seen one. And it is the waved albatross, by the way. It was very, very far away. I took a bad photo of it. That's the only one I've seen. Still an albatross. Still an albatross. <laughs> and you know what? It does not matter. It doesn't um, at all uh, dull my light for wishing to protect those marvellous birds. No, and I think you're doing a brilliant job. And thank you. So we'll end there. And I'll just say bye and... Thank you for everyone listening and I hope you've all learned something and I hope that people will take this away and talk about it and spread the message and go and just love birds because, you know, there's such a, I spoke to, I'm, I'm rambling now, but I spoke to um, Hamza, another CBBS presenter uh, last week, and he described birds as a gateway species to nature because birds are all around us. You know, they're so accessible. There's so, there's so much, there's so many resources to learn about them nowadays that, you know, if you can get interested in one thing, it's like a chain effect. And, you know, getting interested in that over there 
makes you interested in this over there and you see how everything links up and you see how important everything is and how everything has a place in nature so totally thank totally. you again thank you again before we go on for another hour <laughs> right I was so excited to have this conversation today about the amazing albatross and the work that people around the world are doing to help the species thrive. It's incredible to hear such positive and uplifting news about the success of different conservation projects going on all over the world. The albatross is a bird, as I said, that has always been quite mysterious to me and it was great to hear more about them in this conversation, but also to further discuss how we can engage people in nature and conservation. That's exactly why I started this podcast, of course, to share the excitement and passion of my brilliant expert guests and empower you, the listener, to get involved and make a difference to the world around you. Today, of course, is the first day of spring, so I'll end with this proverb. No matter how long the winter, spring is sure to follow. I'm Charlie, and this has been Mountain Conversations 